All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome to Crossing Streams, brought to you by the Bizzlecast. As always, I am here solo today. Um, Maddie G could not be here. As many of you know, or hopefully a lot of you know, um, listening to us, Matt is uh, actually an award-winning sports writer um, for the Cape Cod Times, which, considering it you know, covers a lot of Northeast um New England uh, has, a, has a very big readership, I think 40, 50,000. Um, and they've been really nice to us in, in posting um, our podcast uh, on their Facebook page uh, sometimes and just kind of promoting it. Um, I don't know if we've gotten a lot of uh, readers of the Cape Cod Times, but it's very nice of them. And, and I do appreciate it. Uh, me being the Bizzle and we being sort of the Bizzlecast family. Um, it's been amazing having Matt on. And uh, he'll, I I think we'll, we'll be on again down the road. I hope so, but he's a, a baseball specialist among other sports that he covers. And if you know about baseball and you know about New England, then you know that late April every year, I should say by late April, from the Red Sox all the way down to the single A affiliates in a very competitive uh, minor league and um, number of different leagues in that area, there's a lot to cover and a lot to write about. And uh, even though we've been pretty good about getting them out on Mondays uh, or Tuesdays at the latest, um, sort of irregular, uh, your regular dose of TV talk um, from the Biz and Maddie G, um, we were getting sort of closer and closer um, to the point where like we would be recording late Sunday night, and then I would either stay up super late Sunday night into Monday morning, editing, and then getting it prepared to go out or putting it out. Um, cause I like to release it in the afternoons, or sometimes I would just do it immediately uh, after work on Monday, and then getting it up and posting first thing on Tuesday. So uh, just on both of our ends, uh, started to get uh, to get a little crazy, and uh, we really felt like we loved how most of the the podcast went. They did get a little bit longer over time, but I think that's just because, well, I, I can't speak for Matt, but for me personally, um, that was just because I really like talking with him in general, but especially about all the Bizzlecast topics we talk about, you know, parts of nerd world and pop culture, you know, comic books, television, movies, cultural trends, and so forth, something I've always talked about and will continue to talk about, um, but uh, I, I would just keep recording instead of putting a hard stop, uh, and uh, Matt and I had a bit of a debate on this topic about whether we should keeping them uh, keeping them specifically much shorter um it really depends on your listening habits i have a number of podcasts i listen to that uh, go over two hours on a regular basis now maybe it's not every week but it's regular um and back in the day when i was listening to tons of podcasts and wasn't really making my own yeah, some of those i would listen to all of it over the course of a week if i like what they were talking about now I'll just sort of jump around i'm gonna try it all my podcasts going forward uh guys to start having a more regular table of content i'm usually so focused on just getting them out um, and uh, having a decent copy, um, I'll, I'll try harder to get a uh, table of contents in in the copy uh, in all places it's posted. So if you want to jump to, you know, different parts of the podcast, um, you should be able to do that. Especially when we're you know running down TVs. Of course, one you know the thing that was um, that's great about our. Uh, rapport, um, from my perspective, when, when we're flowing well, is that we can meander in and out of shows and still kind of come back to them later, sometimes much later, and, and tie the loop back together. And Matt and I did dozens and dozens of podcasts. We've also done a Firefly commentary that I'm really going to try and get out uh, for this summer. Um, I believe, uh, actually, this, this fall um, is the 15th anniversary of Firefly's premiere on Fox, brief though it was, I think it's this fall. And so th- there'll be sort of a fun 15th anniversary present for all of us Firefly fans. And Matt and I had a blast doing the Firefly commentaries. Of course, you know, um, just this is a good time to give you guys a little behind the scenes. You know, when I'm recording a commentary with someone else, they're not with me, obviously. They're, they're calling over Skype. And so we do everything we can to sync our commentaries with each other work while the movie's at the same place, even though there's a slight lag in the connection. So it'll get a little tricky. So a few of the 14 Firefly episodes just need a little bit more editing than others. But um, once it's done, I'm just going to re- release it as a package. And you can take any and all of the episodes. Um, and that'll be a good way to tie back around, which is um, I'm going to uh, go back to the Bizzlecast TV 
um, moniker um, rather than continue crossing streams because this was really Matt's idea. And, you know, even though as he talks about, and I appreciate, you know, he just has to come on for a couple hours. He also does the copy and contributes a lot of ideas to the podcast. And then, you know, he, he, he's always been very appreciative of my, my editing and, and uh, you know, the hours it takes after the podcast um, as well. But this was his idea. And he is definitely the TV guy, as you guys know. And so I'm going to continue being more regular, actually, with my TV coverage because one of the many positive sides that came out of my work with Maddie uh, was forcing myself to watch more good shows. And even though the ones that on paper I should have liked a lot, like Legion um, or um, Taboo, which I'm actually going to give another shot to Taboo, uh, these slow-plotting uh, European or European-style shows, um, or Legion's case, just fucking crazy. I didn't necessarily get into, but I definitely wouldn't have watched four or five episodes of the eight of Legion. Um, you know, I wouldn't have even really given the shot past the first if it wasn't for Matt. I would have never gone back to The Expanse, which although had a disappointing run the second half of the season, which I'll talk a little bit about um, in a bit, uh, you know, has had more episodes than I've liked than disliked, you know, and the ones I've liked, I've I've liked a lot, and so, um, you know, I'll, I'll be checking out Amazon shows uh, more regularly. You know, my dad's always checking out new stuff. You know, as uh, me and he, uh, him, uh, he and I are going to talk about uh, in our upcoming podcast, probably a couple days after this is released, about the Night Manager, which I've teased a couple times. I finally watched. My dad's been trying to get me to watch forever. It was like this is the best show of the last few years, and he was totally right. I mean, Hiddleston, Olivia Coleman, and Hugh Laurie just absolutely crushed that uh, six episode AMC BBC collaboration. Um, and even though FX continues to have more of the sort of edgy, uh, you know, or I should say, like kind of on the cool bubble uh, shows, like everything from Atlanta to The Americans to Legion, the OJ Simpson thing, you know, they're, they're having a great run of it on FX. Um, but th- there is a level of kind of understated class to AMC. And I didn't even love Mad Men, but I, I can see why it was so appealing. And, you know, I, I mean, I don't watch Into the Badlands past the first season. I don't watch The Walking Dead or any of those associated things. I guess it's mostly associated with Breaking Bad, but they've done just some really interesting stuff over the years. And, and what I think men I agreed on, even though FX is definitely on top right now in terms of number of really quality shows, I, I, even I cannot uh, contest that <laughs> with my, you know, medium-sized knowledge of television at best. Um, you know, all the AMC properties really feel tonally uh, and cinematically different um, to an extent that I would, you know, it, no one but the premiums, I think, can can contest. I mean, I, I you know, this, this is a whole podcast at least, but if you contrast, you know, Breaking Bad and Mad Men up against, let's see, what are the two biggest dramas on HBO? Game of Thrones uh, and uh, the... Uh, the robot one, which I'm blanking on right now. Uh, why, I keep wanting to call it Waterworld, Westworld. I guess it's better than Waterworld. I don't remember hating Waterworld. I just remember being so widely panned, even at the time, for being a giant flop. But, um, you know, it's just, it's interesting how they're sort of, um, you know, a, a kind of almost like bacterial spread uh, across channels over time. You, you know, if you think of uh, the amount of quality television as sort of a good disease overall, um, you know, epidemiology hasn't really been able to stop it. And so shows like Breaking Bad, which would have been classic early 2000s HBO, now work better on AMC. Point being, it's not surprising that BBC would pick them and vice versa to do a collaboration on the level of the Night Manager, which I'm going to talk about with my dad. We do have American Gods coming up. Really the only major television event that I really care about this year uh, that I'm aware of so far is Orphan Black on June 10th. Um, I think American Gods will be cool. I like Neil Gaiman a lot. Um, we'll see how it translates uh, onto the small screen or uh, I guess, you know, 16 televisions these days. Jesus Christ. I don't have a 16 television. Don't worry about that. But, you know, I know people, plenty of people who do um i mean i have a 42 inch television it's which seems small now but you know would have been unheard of back in the day uh so as we get these theaters in our houses i'm gonna need to um adjust and reattune myself away from just movies because there just aren't as many good movies coming out every year because studios are releasing fewer movies and more and more of them are these sort of you know 
PG-13 fair that all looks and acts and behaves and unravels like all the other ones. And I'm looking at you, Marvel, even though, you know, I love the Marvel stuff. I think that those formulas are starting to wear off. And a lot of the talent, I mean, look, it would have been unheard of for the amount of Oscar winning and nominated stars on television full time now. I mean, who's, you know, I mean, there's got to be dozens. Um, you know, I'm, I think Claire Danes has been nominated for an Oscar. I could, from her early work, I could be wrong in that uh, she's been in both mediums. But, you know, it, it, it kind of started on HBO in sort of the mid-2000s. Um, and I think Larry, Larry David, actually, with the Curb Your Enthusiasm, being like the ultimate celeb show to be on because you got to be cool for making fun of yourself as a celebrity. You know, he became like the new Oprah almost. You know, it's like you don't want to talk to a fake psychologist like Oprah or Ellen, you know, unload your burdens on, on middle America, much better to do it in a self-parodying way on uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. And I think being, you know, self-deprecating and self-parodying has actually helped uh, Hollywood culture quite a bit. Everyone in the old days used to take uh, themselves, you know, way too seriously. And if social media has done anything, it's forced them to take themselves a little less seriously. Um, And I think seeing that they're competing against untalented, you know, pieces of trash that are famous for being famous for being famous, like the Kardashian and Hilton crews, it has to make them feel somewhat better about themselves. That's a whole other podcast as well. But the point is, there's tons on television. I mean, Glenn Close, Battlestar had two. You know, you just go down the list and it's just undeniable. And so I'm probably, you know, I'm going to have to get myself a slightly bigger television screen and a more comfortable setup and just be cool with that experience. I hate DVRs. Uh, you know, Matt really liked, uh, and likes uh, like shows on the CW and sci-fi and so forth, but it's so much DVRing. I honestly, when I still thought Arrow was good, uh, Arrow was good. And now it's shite. Um, and the CWs in general are, are really questionable other than Supergirl, which is, you know, remains quite good. Um, and, uh, I, so, and I bought, I would buy episodes of the expanse. Um, and this is, this is a public service announcement that I'm going to do a very, very mini podcast on like a five minute one and just constantly be blasting out that people don't understand. It doesn't matter how good your TV or how good your cable service or cable box is. It is projecting for the most part from HD stations in what's called 1080i. But if you notice, when you use Netflix or Amazon Prime, um, or even if you've like monitored your frame rate on your Blu-rays, it says 1080p. Well, the, the jump from 1080i to, to 1080p, even though they're tricking you with the name, is basically the equivalent to the jump from 720, which used to be the old HD standard, to 1080, which is the current one. So it, the new ones are really going to be called like 1440 or whatever the next step up is, or at least 1080 should be reduced to 900. So am I throwing out all these numbers? Well, if you if just experiment once if you've never tried this. If you only do a cable with DVR, experiment with this. Buy an episode that you've watched and you have taped of a show um, on an HD channel and then buy the HD version of it for, you know, three bucks online and play them side by side or back to back, but on the same television, you will not believe the uptick in color, um, subtle saturation, clearness, um, you know, lack of fuzzy, um, borders around people and and objects. I mean, it's really like a whole different watching experience. And so I I urge you to get Blu-rays. I always thought it was cool to have Blu-rays, um, or even just the digital uh, seasons of the seasons you love, because you never know when they're not going to be available anymore. And it's great to be able to download them and watch them portably. I got a Amazon, uh, fire eight HD for like 70 bucks recently, which is crazy because the, iPad version of the same thing is like 300. I know it's not, you know, it's not uh, an iPad. It's way less functional. The browser's crap. The YouTube app is eh. But if mostly you need it for Netflix and Amazon with a tiny bit of, of YouTube or HBO on the side, uh, it's an excellent deal for 70 bucks. Uh, and so that's actually been making the TV um, shows, uh, show watching um, even easier. But, you know, I can tell the clarity on the 
mini tablet versus the giant television but if you play it back to back on the same device like your giant television and of course like everything the bigger a picture is the more it's stretched out and the less clear it's going to be so you know the difference between 1080i and 1080p on a tablet is actually relatively small the same way um if you say you have a big iphone or samsung like a five inch five and a half inch whatever play youtube and watch a video and switch from 720 to 1080 and uh you know on a five inch phone it doesn't make that much of a difference i'll often just play out 720 so that it loads faster or in slower areas um your computer or a big tablet okay you're starting to notice the difference a 40 50 60 plus inch television it's so noticeable it's hard to go back but the cool thing is you know especially for movies that have been out um, or came out a while ago or just oversaturated. I mean, you can get, you know, $5 Blu-rays that come with digital code. So before you drop $12 for a digital code for a movie, I'm not against that at all. Um, or a television show, see if you can get a cheap Blu-ray used or new um, on Amazon or online or whatever. So the point being, I'm back to my old problem. Maybe this was actually in my head before about me realizing it, is that I hate watching 1080i when I can watch 1080p. But I can't get basic cable without having a cable package, uh, you know, and then I do have some of the channels like Supergirl that I want to watch. Thing is, if I could eliminate my cable bill, um, I could probably afford, I don't know, two, three, four shows for the year, which would mostly do it for me. And this brings me back to Orphan Black Season 5, which is uh, me and my dad are both going to be watching Orphan Black Season 5 from the beginning. It is on BBC America. However, the first four seasons are already on Amazon Prime. This you'll have to buy, you know, or wait a year or whatever. I will be buying every one of those episodes because I want to watch the final season of one of the most brilliantly conceived and executed and acted shows of all time uh, in glorious, glorious uh, one, uh, sorry, 1080 um, P and not I. Uh, you know, it's once you watch it, you just, you can't go back. And so I'm going to do more research and I'll do a, a longer public service announcement. But if you've noticed this sort of subtly and haven't been able to put your finger on it, you know, like a splinter in your mind, Matrix style, it's not a splinter in your eye, so to speak. It's a splinter in the cable, once again, trying to rip you off. Also, if you are paying more than $150 a month for a cable uh, without premiums, um, then you, you need to renegotiate negotiate your contract um but uh anyways to wrap it up um orphan black is going to be a major event and bizzlecast tv is going to go on um in this podcast i'm mostly just going to talk about the expanse because it was the final episode of season two and really the only one that i watched this year or i should say the only uh one that i watched this past week and that's that's really worth talking about um and uh before i go there though i just want to thank matt again for being awesome a senior contributor um and i'm hoping he'll you know be not so busy this summer so we can talk some orphan black or game of thrones which i'm gonna try and give a, a try to the final two seasons because once i recognized in season three that they were just stringing out the stories for seasons and it was clear there would be no major resolutions or, or changes of events other than constant death i kind of tuned out now that we've got the dragons and the two sides are meeting and so forth uh I, you know in seven episode seasons i think it's what they're hoping for i think they're like there are a few holdouts out there who should like our show who don't so we're gonna make it seven episodes because we might both convince up to do it it was brilliant of legion to start with a i think atlanta which i need to binge watch and do um a uh, not a commentary but you know talk about uh those shows starting with eight is a very uh, good um a good number it, it's a nice number that's much easier to commit to six to eight is much easier to commit to than 10 12 13 you know obviously and onward so everyone uh wish matt a good luck at the cape cod times covering his ass off this summer or i should say covering the ass off baseball and other sports this summer you can of course reach him at matt goisman cct um or you can always uh email us uh, i haven't had the, the email out before but the easiest one just because you 
will remember it. It's just bizzlecast at gmail.com. You can just e- email bizzlecast at gmail.com and put Matt in the header or the, or the top of the body. I'll, I will forward on uh, that on to him. Um, and, uh, yeah, going to move on with tonight's program with uh, The Expanse um, and some teases of what's com- going to come down the Bizzlecast shoot in general for the next couple of weeks. Uh, but first of all, it's time to wish 10-year anniversary coming up very soon for the Guild. What is the Guild, you ask? Well, my Guildies, I'm assuming most of you have watched this show. Uh, or at least know about it. You know, I talk constantly about Felicia Day and Will Wheaton and the amazing nerd community they've built up at Geek and uh, Sundry, which is now part of what they call Project Alpha um, with the Nerdist, and you do have to pay a little bit for it now, although they still make a lot of content available on YouTube, and for five bucks a month, if you like that stuff, it's actually quite worth it. Um, and you don't have to watch ads or anything like that. But anyways, uh, the guild was created either during or right before the writer's strike, the famous uh, Hollywood writer's strike of 2007, 2008, right as the economy was going to shit too. Man, those years when, you know, when whole shows weren't operating because the writers were on strike. And some shows we get crappy writers like Heroes and, and some lame sitcoms, you know, who weren't part of the writer's guild to write for them. And then that was contested as being illegal. Eventually they settled, and I, I, I supported the writers at the time, not knowing as much about the industry as I do now, but I did have friends in the film industry, and even the ones who weren't writers supported it. David Letterman openly supported it. A lot of showrunners who relied on writers very much were in support of it. And part of the impetus was because of syndication, where they you know where you rerun shows infinitely on other channels like TBS, but especially because of DVD, Blu-ray, and digital sales, um, none of the those sort of uh, tertiary income sources, uh, which weren't so tertiary at times, were coming to the writers. Um, and it seemed unfair that the studios were making all the money and the writers weren't getting compensated for it. Eventually, a pretty pro-writer solution was arrived upon, I think. And it was partially because even people who were benefiting inside the system saw that this was going nowhere good and that the writers were serious about it. Anyways, I, I mentioned that because the Guild was a comedy online web series that was released on YouTube um, and uh, did such an amazing job on a tiny budget where they're using just handhelds in the first season that it was picked up by Microsoft to be semi-exclusive that you could then get on, on YouTube as part of Xbox, Zoom, MSN Video, and so forth. Um, has had tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of watches. Since then, is now free to stream on Netflix, where it's extremely popular. It's not hard to see why. Um, and it was, you know, it, 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 vlogging was already a thing in 2007, but to turn vlogging into the kind of catalyst for an entire, you know, comedy uh, show... Um, with the premise being the main character played by Felicia Day, who was also the creator and showrunner, um, being a much you know less successful and more insecure uh, Warcraft uh, player, although they just call it the game in the guild. Um, Sid Sherman, she goes by Codex, which is her screen name. It gets you know it's constantly hilarious who uses their screen names all over the place and who uses their real names, but. Anyways, the first season was like ten, like ten, three to five minute, you know, mini episodes, and it's really funny. But when they finally got like a real budget and a serious production team for season two, it just absolutely takes off. Um, the premise is extremely simple, but the amount of hilarious hijinks they're able to get out of it is staggering. It's basically there's six of them, three men and three women of different ages and ethnicities who all live in Los Angeles. Um, I think they know that they live somewhat close to each other but they never go out of their way and then when Zabu the incredibly persistently annoying wannabe lover of uh, Felicia Day's character Sid aka Codex but maybe you know other than Vork who's the old bald white guy that you everyone thinks is behind these things you know these middle-aged single nerdy awkward white men with you know crappy or no jobs you know he ends of course ends up being much smarter and more complex and uh, capable that than the stereotype. So those two guys really make the comedy of the show. Although all the characters are hilarious in their own way. And so, um, without ever seeing her in person and just hearing her voice over the headset, Zabu falls for Codex. And then when he sees her, you know she's a beautiful woman, Felicia Day. But he was already in love with her, and he really spends 
two full seasons just trying to get in her pants actually just try to win her affections which is part of what's adorable you know the sexual stuff is you know he is a priority but isn't a top priority he's just smitten with her and it's a classic tale of him building her up as someone in his head that's so much you know <laughs> quote unquote you know more more complex and uh almost like princess like you know it's like his little princess and there's just so much going on so anyways the premise is these six people haven't met before and through a series of events they have to come together in person and meet each other and from then on it's a constant balance of oh my god should we ever have met you know everything you know bad about the guild is coming out of the fact that we met but there's also things that we couldn't have gotten through unless we got closer as friends and there's no real message to it it's definitely not telling people to stop playing Warcraft um, at all, actually. They, they're playing the game just as hardcore from beginning to end, regardless of how much physical, you know, FaceTime they have with each other. But what it is telling, uh, or what it is suggesting to gamers is that you can have both. You know, you can play four to eight hours a night or whatever of, of, of MMOs, uh, multi, massive multiplayer online games, but still have a, a social life either with or without your guildies outside. It's kind of kind of a cool notion that you could sign up World of Warcraft. I mean, I, I have an account that I barely use. I could go on right now and probably find people whose IP addresses are in 30 miles, strike up a friendship, and then start hanging out with them. And, you know, someone who's gotten into board gaming and alternative sort of nerd culture like that, um, it's, uh, well, it could definitely be a good, it's a definitely a good way to meet people. Uh, gamers tend to be flaky in real life, um, really flaky as any as anyone uh, is you know um you know meaning you know it's not like there's some cult that's like super loyal of uh, of board gamers out there it's it's just as diverse um and spread out and complicated as the as the people who play it um but it is a way to meet people and get out and just you know and just check out different cultures and so it is about gaming culture but it's also you know a lot about i mean they're constantly using in-game lingo you know uh to describe their life you know that's the big joke you know so zabu who's in love with with uh with codex you know talks about like she insinuates that maybe he could have her, but he needs to level up. And so he needs to go on a series of personal quests. And, you know, he's constantly leveling and, and he comes back like three days later, later, you know, like, cause a super girl can level up like to a level 103 days. So that's what's on his mind. So it, it's not even trying to be a subtle metaphor of life, um, or life being a subtle metaphor of the game and so forth as just sort of playing with that idea. And the truth is some of them are very non-awkward personalities. I mean, Amy Okuda, who arguably, other than Felicia Day, benefited the most from this. She was very young and beautiful. Uh, Asian girl. Now, she plays the bitchy one who acts totally selfish and acts like she never actually wants to hang out with them, even though she does at some level. And she does open up a little bit as it goes along after ditching them, betraying them, and then coming back to the fold with Will Wheaton. Season three is maybe the best season, if not season two, because of Will Wheaton's kilt-wearing, dictator-quoting, evil leader of the of the rival guild, who nevertheless manages to seduce uh, Codex, played by Felicia Day, even though she hates him. Um, and so, you know, all that stuff kind of goes on, but they have Clara as well. Um, oh, I was saying Amy Okuda's Asian character is, is actually very insecure, but not in the ways they, they are. She's the sort of typical teenage college girl insecurity that she covers up with her sort of cold bitchiness. Um, the only one who who apparently has no insecurities is Blades, who's the teenage, uh, a good-looking but self-obsessed, blonde-haired teenage kid that they've somehow let into their their clan. Um, who who you know is constantly buying things and doing things for Amy Okuda's character Tink. Her name's Tinkerbala. How brilliant is that? You know, making Tinkerbell to. to Bala, Tinkerbala, hilarious. Um, and then the uh, one I haven't mentioned is Clara, who's this yeah, chubby but still very cute and perky mom of like a bazillion kids. He's constantly churning out kids, a little overweight. She's like just acts like a total doofus. I mean, she's like Phoebe times 10 in terms of, in terms of her dumbness. You know, Phoebe and Unfriends, from what I remember, had her moments of clarity and wisdom. Clara's just an idiot and she hates her kids. I mean, they put kids in cage and have them like playing with electrical sockets i don't know how they got away with this stuff but all she wants to do is game she has to make her husband aka mr wiggly uh in, into the breadwinner and the one taking care of the kids because she just games all day i mean these people are addicted and uh 
it's it's a little Seinfeld esque uh, in the sense of you know they don't nearly do the bad stuff in Seinfeld, uh, and because Codex and Vork are sort of the two leaders, Vork being the old white guy, they do have principles and they keep the other people principled enough. Uh, but it's like Seinfeld in that they don't really change over the six; they, it, they sort of grow in some positive and some less positive directions. They definitely have grown and matured by the end. Um, they're able to hand, handle relationships more. They're you know happier and more content with each other's presence you know it takes place over real time basically so it's like a there's like a two-year online friendship that becomes you know a five-year actually no it doesn't happen in real time because some of the the seasons bleed um into one another and but it is sort of it's like the modern friends show i mean three guys three girls you know all sort of awkward and quirky in their own ways you know not nearly as beautiful but although none of them are unattractive um amy okuda is is, is drop tight gorgeous felicia days is, is is a natural beauty even though she's constantly making herself look ugly uh, that series and on other series or whatever she you know she's no problem with it um and this love is speaking of felicia day uh she very much influenced joss whedon who she had worked with in the past on buffy and maybe other things to do Dr. Horrible Sing-Along Blog, which is, uh, Dr. Horrible's Sing-Along Blog, uh, which was the single three-part, 45-minute long um, online musical uh, with Neil Patrick Harris being the titular Dr. Horrible, you know, like, again, a sort of insecure uh, bad guy who it seems like just needs a good relationship, but if not, he's going to destroy the world. Nathan Fillion, who plays the he plays what an anti-hero should be in the sense of he's considered, you know, a, uh, a Captain America type, a pure good guy, but all he really cares about is himself and, and his ego, and so you actually root for Dr. Horrible. And uh, Dr. Horrible's in love with um, Felicia Day's character. She ends up you know, for obvious reasons, with, uh, with, with, um, uh, what do they call him? Mr. Hammer? Dr. Hammer? I can't remember. Um, Captain Hammer. Yeah, Captain Hammer. Um, whose logo is just like a nerd print shirt of a handed hammer. Uh, but she's not sure if she's in love with him and whatever. And, uh, it, it was great casting. And, you know, Captain Hammer even jokes about the fact that she's awkward and nerdy. And, and Felicia just fits right in there. And, uh, you know, this current nerd revolution which has at least as many women as men involved in it, you know, role-playing shows online, Will Wheaton's Tabletop, which is very female-heavy in terms of the guests he has on the show, and the guests he wants to have on the show, and the whole Geek and Sundry and Nerdist Networks. Um, you know, there's still, a, you know, the big-time guy, well, I guess the big three um, is you have Chris Hardwick at Nerdist, and then you have Felicia Day at Geek and Sundry, and then you have Will Wheaton sort of floating between the two. I think he's going to go off and do his own thing once the season of Tabletop tabletop finishes airing he did not like having to be on pay subscription he wanted it to be on youtube and he protested uh the you know legendary which is the giant chinese company that owns all of them now uh we could talk about that on a later podcast and they struck it struck a deal with him because they didn't want him to be completely miserable and still promote the show and they said, okay, it'll be exclusive for two months on ProjectAlpha.com, and then you can release it on your YouTube channel. And uh, Will Wheaton pretty much only advertises it once it comes to YouTube. I mean, he really, I, I think, doesn't like being under their yoke. He's famously like bordering on radical politics, progressive guy, come, you know, coming out of Hollywood. Uh, I'm going to do a whole Will Wheaton podcast. We've talked about him a lot on, on the show, mostly with Matt uh, and uh, also with my dad. Um, but uh, he was, j- even though Felicia Day resurrected his career with that hilarious role in season three and four of the guild and then he started playing himself like an evil version of himself on the big bang theory between those two things it really resurrected his career to the point where you know his tabletop campaigns raise millions of dollars per year so that they can do an ultra professional production if anything he's gotten too much money and it's become too professional he probably knows that in season four there's just a sort of lifelessness with, with the camera filter and it looks too much like celebrity poker uh, than it used to um, and this is I think it's going to be its final season uh, he's even talked about getting sick of board games 
games, and he's played like everyone on the planet multiple times. So I'm sure he'll be off to other ventures, but Felicia Day is still the ringleader behind this. And man, does she, I mean, like she's executive producer and name on tabletop and has been probably since the beginning. I think she asked him to do the show, but while she appears, it's because people want her to appear and he wants her to appear. Uh, you know, she mostly stays in the background, even though she's indirect, directly or indirectly funding a lot of this stuff uh, through Geek, uh, Geek and Sundry. I'm visiting Geek and Foundry, Geek and Sundry. Um, you know, she, she really is hands off when it comes to creativity. She, she she recognizes talent, she hires them, she empowers them, and she sits back and just lets it happen. And so, everyone who knows anything, I should say, anyone who knows anything about modern geek culture, meaning the last ten years, knows that Felicia Day is even more important than Chris Hardwick, even though Hardwick has a higher profile because his face is on TV all the time on a bunch of stupid, worthless shows. Um, um, and his podcast does get a lot of hits among nerds. Uh, you know, he has way less cred than what Will Wheaton and Felicia Day. And uh, he's good buddies with Will Wheaton, really good buddies. From there, they ended up um, being roommates together in college when they're, you know, Will Wheaton was sort of coming off of being a famous child actor and Chris Hardwick was struggling being a host of Singled Out with Jenny McCarthy. Um, uh, you know, stupid dating show that he's admitted, even at the time, but you could just tell that he was uninterested. But they became buddies and they partied together in college. And like happens with some col- intense college friendships, you party so much, so you spend so much time together and then you go in different directions and it, you know, it may be a while, if ever, before you come back together. And they, you know, reconnected uh, some later in life when Will had you know, uh, married and adopted a couple kids with his, from his wife um, uh, and his wife and his kids, uh, Anne and Ryan and uh, Colin? What's his other kid's name? No, Colin was the character he played in Mice and Mystics. Um, anyways, his two boys and his lovely wife, Anne, who's hilarious and been on a bunch of tabletop episodes. She accidentally destroyed all the trains by slamming the table with uh, Ticket to Ride, which is one of the great moments ever. Um, probably the two greatest tabletop moments ever is that, which they've shown a million times. Um, she didn't realize how flexible the table was, being like a professional a game table that was curved so that the camera could see it better. Um, and when Will Wheaton loses it on Lords of Waterdeep, when uh, Patrick Rothfuss and Felicia Day and um, Brandon Latch team up on him unnecessarily and just keep dropping mandatory quests on him, which if you haven't played Lords of Waterdeep are just stupid quests that you get no points for that you have to complete before doing anything else. Uh, And a game with limited resources in eight rounds can really screw you and ended up really screwing him. And that was the first episode, although he had cursed before, that was the one where he was just dropping F-bombs left and right and visibly upset. And they got him to actually relax halfway through the game when he just accepted defeat and you know will wheaton losing at his own on his own show constantly is a running choke and his horrible dice rolling that's why he was pissed about that game because that was the one truly strategic game where dice couldn't interfere the only thing that could interfere was a little bad luck but also the other players teaming up on you which is what happened and ends up being very fun and funny but uh, you know that's the episode that introduced the owl bear which i talk about all the time um have owl bear t-shirts and stuff and for you kids with your video games out there owl bear it's got the body of a bear and the head of an owl, quote unquote. Uh, so God bless Will Wheaton. God bless Felicia Day for the guild. Um, they both look like they're 29 instead of in their 40s or whatever they are now. Um, and uh, I guess the biggest surprise for me was that uh, Sandeep Parikh, uh, who plays uh, Zabu, didn't get more comedic roles after that because his timing and speed of delivery is really second to none. I mean, he's like with Kramer when Kramer's had too many cafe lattes, but all the time. Great physical comedy. He had absolutely no romantic chemistry with Felicia Day, which was the whole point. It made it hilarious. Um, and his costume's great. He's like a gnome warlock, which, you know, never happens. Um, and uh, But I think he does produce and direct it and write and do other stuff. So I'm sure this helped them all. Amy Okuda, for sure, who's been back on uh, maybe the best, and Matt and I agree on this one, I think, you know, the best of season four by far so far of tabletop has been the, the two-part uh, fury of dracula where he had on amy okuda um 
uh, and, um, oh God, who was on that? Um, Ife, I can't pronounce his, his last name. Ife, who's a online, uh, African American nerd personality who, who just really killed it with the jokes and the impressions on the show. And Grand Imahara, who is used to work for, I think he like worked for NASA and then he worked on special effects on like the Star Wars prequels and other movies in Hollywood. And then he was, he hosted Mythbusters and some of those, you know, sort of more serious reality science shows um and he's not just sort of uh you know nerd personality just he seems like he doesn't do anything but hang out with other nerds which is great if that's the case uh and he's always an excellent guest um on tabletop has a very distinctive kind of sweet uh effusive uh personality he's been on some of the more classic episodes um so uh i guess Tabletop might be five this year, so we're celebrating five years of that, ten years of the Guild. If you haven't seen the Guild, watch it. If you like the Guild uh, and you like uh, you know Nathan Fillion and or um, uh, Joss Whedon, you know, I mean that really rebooted Joss Whedon's career. It was something he could do during the writer strike because he did it himself. Oh, I was going to say uh, the beginning of season three is if, if you've only seen one thing from the Guild, it's probably the music video. Do you want to date my avatar? Where the, where the six are all dressed up in their their costumes from uh, the World of Warcraft or whatever, and, and you know it's distilling all the the sexual uh, jokes in in World of Warcraft lingo into a, a, a very addictive. Uh, and, and sexy and hilarious music video with the six of them where Felicia Day sings because of course she does and has an amazing voice and sings Dr. Horrible. Uh, oh, Neil Patrick Harris, who even if you didn't love uh, How I Met Your Mother, uh, is is you know so famous for being Doogie Howser, the kid doctor when he was a kid. Uh, he's I think one of the first sort of young male Hollywood stars to come out. Um, as being gay and be sort of an activist, but not in your face. And like, it, it's the constant joke in, in, in Hollywood that between his acting, his looks, his humor, and his voice is like the perfect guy, but no girls can have him, <laughs> you know? Um, it, and uh, he is just amazing in that, and Joss Whedon's brilliant. But anyways, the, the Avatar song and music video, the music was written by, the, the, the lyrics by Felicia Day, obviously, but the, the music was written by Jed Whedon, and it was Josh's brother Jed and Josh and his other brother Zach who did Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. They have they have tons of musical talent and to loop it around to something more uh, modern and, and uh, relevant to some of the listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame um, is kind of buddies with them and uh, is starting to work with some of that crew and he says he said he was very inspired watching Dr. Horrible because even though it was kind of goofy, the music was amazing. I mean, it showed how you could make, uh, I, you know, I've talked before about how musicals are either, you know, there is no fourth wall, um, or, you know, or they have no clue that there's a fourth wall, but, the, you know, uh, with, with Dr. Horrible, it was like, they could have it both ways. Like, the characters... I guess Dr. Horrible was the one character because he was, he was vlogging, right? So his, his, his breaking down of the fourth wall was the vlog, but as soon as he's engaged back into the you know, actual story... He's oblivious of it, which is great. So, um, so yeah, so that's that. Congrats to the Guild. And uh, time to move on to this week's uh, final topic, which is The Expanse, uh, the end of Season 2 on the Sci-Fi Channel. I absolutely um, had trouble getting uh, into this show in the first season. Matt convinced me to go back. Um, I got through the first season, especially loved the final two or three episodes of the first season, and then there was sort of a five-episode arc at this beginning of this season, season two, uh, involving Thomas Jane's character, Miller, and the development of the proto-molecule, um, and, uh, you know, the, the sort of the two main character arcs with Miller, who was um, on a, a station, and, and the four other main characters who were on a stolen ship, basically, came together in an effort to, to stop the proto-molecule. The problem was, you get rid of Miller and Thomas Jane, who just, he's one of those actors you appreciate way more when he's not on... Um, you know, not on the show anymore. Uh, and the, the fact that the chemistry of the people on earth, um, with, uh, uh, Agdashlu, um, the amazing older, uh, Persian actress. I mean, she was fantastic. And when Frankie Adams, uh, who played uh, gunny, 
you know, defected from the Mars military. They had some good chemistry, but this the writing never came quite to get, came quite together. The crew of the Rosinante was never quite there. Um, again, it, it was clear, and we looked this up that it was, I guess, a different director, maybe not different writers. But the the writing just became more cliched, and you know, Stephen Stephen Strait as the lead character Holden was able to nail uh, a little cliched writing earlier in the season. It just seemed to be too much, or the way it was framed. Later on down the road, the key with, with the cheesy line, people, if you're a writer out there, okay, is not to get rid of the cheesy line if it works with a character in the moment, but to have that not be sort of a punchline at the end of the scene, whether it's a humorous scene or not. Say it and then have another character make fun of it or just go in a different direction and end the scene there. When you end it on, on end the scene on a corny line like, it's time, let's go, you know, that's just never going to work. And it just felt like there was a lot of, it's time, let's go. Um, and the expanse uh i'll definitely be watching in season three again it's a show that you really notice the difference when you watch in super hd as you know as maybe we should call it 1080p versus just the sci-fi channel on hd um and the production values are certainly quite good but you know by this point season two battlestar had a lot more episodes under their belt um and and had managed to be as strong as ever uh, leading into arguably what was you know the best arc or the second best arc of uh Battlestar, but also one that was never really replicated in terms of excitement for the rest of the series, which is New Caprica when they settled down against their better judgment on a crappy-ass planet and then were enslaved by the Cylons, basically. And it became a Iraq terrorist thing. Um, but it was flipped where the humans were the terrorists and the Cylons were the, you know, quote-unquote innocent civilians or, or the American oppressors, however what you want to look at it. I don't think the expanse is ever going to get there. I was foolish to think so, but it is sad because, you know, I, like I was so pumped after those first five, six episodes of season two, um, that I like bought one of the comics and was going to buy all the comics. Now I'm not sure I'm interested enough to stay engaged with it. Um, or even rewatch it past those first five episodes. Um, but it does show that on today's budget, you know, on the, whether it's sci-fi or CW, you can get some cool special effects and sci-fi must have a, a lower budget than the CW shows. Cause it has like a, a half, or a third of the of the viewers per episode um, although it, as many people have pointed out it did seem like sci-fi was prioritizing the expanse and wanted it to be great and for the most part the reviews continue to be good so if they can look at what they did right and wrong and fix it you know come back with a stronger season um three that would be great you know in some shows fixing means going back to a different formula i happen to love orphan black season three but there's no doubt that the pacing and the tone and the prominence of characters other than tatiana maslani in terms of screen time was quite different than season one and two and so they they gave us even more tatiana maslani bringing back beth with flashbacks in season four so there they went back to what worked battlestar kept trying to go in new directions and it, it was definitely an evolution and a progression i just don't think it was as easily digestible uh, for fans um, as some of the earlier seasons, which are most straight ahead, uh, more straight ahead in terms of good guy, bad guy scenarios. Um, so, you know, sometimes you, you do want to evolve, sometimes you want to return what works for you, but as I've commented, we still don't know these characters that well, and the exposition or, or even dialogue isn't good enough to flesh them out. So maybe we need to slow it down early season three and let's see Naomi's past in flashbacks if we have to, or memories. Let's see it with the other guys. Why is Amos so fucked in the head you know why is there such a huge shift in personality um for uh for uh, kamal's um what's his name alex alex kamal Kazanvar is the actor's name alex kamal's character you know he's like this whiny uh scared you know cowardly guy at the beginning of the series from what i can remember and now he's super confident listening to country music happen all over the place he's actually the character that probably works the best for me over time and i think that's because he's the most experienced and the best actor of the main crew um and uh you know if they do have just a casting and acting problem then there's only so much we can expect but i think giving some more background to these characters and slowing it down um, and not trying to force Game of Thrones type twists and maybe this is just me because those twists don't really work on me I'd rather have character twists you know I mean the reason the end of season one of Battlestar that Adama being shot and almost killed by 
um, by a sleeper version of Sharon who doesn't even want to do it, whose brain mechanisms just kick in to assassinate him, um, is great is because of how I just described it and, the, and how they, they lock her up and they torture her and eventually she gets killed, you know, killed by Kelly um, as revenge, even though it wasn't really her fault. And then she comes back later on the show. Um, and so, you know, the event takes on more gravitas because of how much we learn to love or, or just sympathize or understand these characters and not the actual shooting itself. Cause you knew that they, unless they were writing Eddie almost off the show, it seemed impossible. Uh, you know, he was the only character they couldn't kill, even Rosalind. I mean, they waited, spoiler alert, a long time to kill Rosalind from her cancer, but they could have made it without her. Actually, Starbuck, they fake killed, and it's quite clear they could not have made it without Starbuck. And in fact, the reason season four is difficult is because they ask her to do a lot of stretch acting, if you will, that was unnecessary. Um, it seemed like, you know, she was going to go back to being Starbuck, uh, just a little bit older and a little bit changed. Now, there was a reason for that. Anyways, I'm getting way off course here. But this is the fact that I can talk about all these nuances. Um, and I just, I, the reason I talk about Battlestar is because everyone said it already about Breaking Bad, Mad Men, The Wire, and so forth. But, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, Breaking Bad, you only need a tiny number of characters. And they kept going to the well, but because the characters were evolving and you had seen where it started and you would get some flashbacks and there was a small number of characters, um, it, it continued to work better and better. Where I think the, the second to last season, the fourth season, is probably the best and the, the only reason the fifth isn't the and final is the best is it goes on a little too long and the bad guys just aren't nearly as memor- memorable as gus mike and you know the mexicans and so forth um the mexican cartels uh, and so um you know I, I think the expanse feels like an ensemble show that just doesn't have an ensemble i usually like p- a paring down of it because unless it's the wire battlestar you don't really want an ensemble i mean even mad men and breaking battle they have a ton of characters the core characters remain pretty consistent and, and manageably um small in terms of numbers um, you know, you'd better get more out of actors that you have than to keep adding actors. And uh, they do have a lot of civilians. Like, civilians are way more important in terms of on-screen time and expanse than other sci-fi shows. So that costs money, and that takes time in casting. But it almost would be cooler to see more of the military. And that's, you know, um, why military shows um, or cop shows are mostly about the cops or the military, because that's who's interesting, and you only have so much time to focus on. Um, and it's cool to see the second, third, and fourth level grunts and so forth and how they fit into the whole picture. With The Expanse, it always feels like they're running skeleton crews on these ships because they just don't have the time and money to do it. So my review for uh, Expanse Season um, uh, 2, and uh, I haven't really implemented... uh, I guess we've been doing 1 to 10s or, or percentages or whatever. I would probably give... Here I'm going to go stars, though, um, because the star sounds better than the percentage. I'm going to give Expanse uh, somewhere between three and three and a half stars out of five for season two. I would give the first part of the season four to four and a half stars, and the second half is just two and a half, maybe. So you go in the middle, we'll say three and a half stars, like a 70% or seven out of 10, which is pretty good. That's a pretty good rating, but it, it's, it slipped off in the episodes following Miller's death, spoiler alert, and then it, it definitely did not lead us to a thrilling conclusion. So anyways, so this has been Crossing Streams, episode 14. Um, it's been short. It's been me. Um, I'm going to release my podcast with uh, my dad talking TV and some movies, either uh, this week week or next week got some commentaries coming up as well which i'll talk about and uh again thanks to maddie g and a brilliant idea for crossing streams and uh for now this will be going over to bizzlecast tv um for tv topics in the near future so uh oi oi uh, streamers uh for the last time for now and the bizzlecast is out